I skipped out on oral surgery to be on the call today. So, Dave, if anybody has ever told you <laughs> that that everyone would rather have a root canal than talk to you, you can now tell them it is not true. <laughs> awesome. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by GoChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time you test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free, continuous delivery, check them out at CodeShip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hello and welcome to the Ruby Rogues podcast. Today, featuring Coraline Ada Emke. Hello. David Brady. Caution, this podcast stops and backs up frequently. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I am Avdi Grimm, and joining us today is a special guest, Dave Thomas. Hi. All right. Dave, who the heck are you? <laughs> so uh, I'm Dave Thomas, and uh, I uh, play with Ruby a lot. I play with Elixir a lot. I play with programming all over the place a lot. Uh, and I also spend a fair amount of time thinking about how we program as a community, because fundamentally we spend so much time doing it, and we put so much of ourselves into it that we need to find ways to make it fun and keep it fun. And that's it. I mean, don't don't ask for anything profound. <laughs> okay, so so Dave, I have to ask this. I was reading Uncle Bob's Clean Code yesterday, and in the intro chapter, he introduces you as quote the Godfather of the Eclipse strategy. And I'd like to see how you tie Godfather and programming should be fun. I'm assuming that's you know fun for the people who aren't sleeping with the fishes, right? Eclipse strategy? Yeah, I'm thinking he's talking about the uh, OTI Dave Thomas at that point, given that I think Eclipse is the worth of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. Okay. I take no credit for that. <laughs> I am actually in the, the Bugzilla quotes database at Eclipse, 
because I tweeted that I wished I owned two laptops so that I could watch Eclipse die on a fire twice. Aha. <laughs> okay, so but you have a you have a good point there, David. There are multiple Dave Thomases, and we are talking to Prague Dave. Otherwise known as Ruby Dave, Dave, although now perhaps Elixir Dave? Oh, just fun coding Dave. How about that? No, you must identify yourself strictly with one language. <laughs> oh, that is very true. That is very true. Basic Dave, then. Oh, God. <laughs> was that your first love? That was my first love. It was indeed my first love. I learned to program. Um, do you want the story? Yes. Yeah, yes. I love story. Oh, okay. So I was, I was a slip of a lad. Uh, I was 15, I think. And I was at school. And the way English schools work, you do tests called O-levels and A-levels. And you take your O-levels at uh, normally about 15. You take your A-levels about oh, 17 or so. Anyway, uh, once you finish those tests, you're kind of like um, just like sliding into summer, but you still have to attend school. So the school was looking around for ways of stopping us destroying the place and offered a number of us the chance to go across the road to a local technical college and participate in their very first computer science O-level. They were basically running this class for the very first time. This was 1970-something early, like one, zero, something. And they wanted to basically try it out on some people that didn't matter, so they thought they'd use us. So we went across the road, and they taught us basic programming. And we actually had an ASR 33, which is the old teletype of the paper tape reader. And we had a 110 board modem, which halfway through the course was upgraded to 300 board. And we uh, went online to the local uh, county council that ran an ICL 1900 mainframe. And we would submit our basic code to it and it would type back at us uh, and tell us, uh, you know, basically that we were idiots. So I fell in love. I learned a whole bunch of programming chops doing that. We were given on the computer, uh, I think, space to store five files. Everything else had to be kept on paper tape. And five isn't very many when you're really enthusiastic. So I think one of my first basic programs was self-modifying code that would actually act as a file system. So I could actually inject extra programs into my basic program and it would all work. Yeah. So that's how I got started. And yeah, basic was my first love. I think a lot of art comes from constraints, and it sounds like from the very beginning you had constraints that you had to work through in order to accomplish your goals. Yeah, I don't think I'd call it art particularly, uh, graffiti possibly. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know if – yeah, the constraints actually – I think all along, yeah, constraints have made it really interesting. I mean, there's – you know, there are always constraints because we are always at the leading edge of something. You know, we're always pushing ourselves because – as an industry, that's what we do, and that's kind of how we be competitive. You know, so whatever we're doing, whether it's trying to work out, you know, how to maximize the use of five files on a mainframe or, you know, how to get some reactive bit of JavaScript to work nicely, I think we're always, you know, pushing the envelope. So you're right. I think we have to learn to enjoy the constraints. What are the primary constraints you see coming into play in today's programming? You mentioned JavaScript, and Constraint is a nice way of putting that, but uh, what sort of factors do you think are limiting us and pushing us to be creative today? Mm, I don't know about factors pushing us to be creative. I think factors that are making it hard, expectations that we put on ourselves, and that kind of comes around to uh, the topic of the day at some point. But I think that as a community, we are really, really bad at 
socially straightjacketing ourselves. And so we have these incredible expectations that every developer, as well as being, you know, imaginative and original and everything else, also has to follow the traditions du jour. And that may involve, you know, which testing framework you're using or which build tool you're using or whatever else. And as a developer, that means that you're constantly having to stop the interesting stuff and go back and try and catch up with what all the cool kids are doing. And so I think we'd probably see like a threefold increase in productivity if we could somehow break that cycle. The cycle of having to learn the new latest thing over and over? Well, I think there's, there's like this fashion. I don't know if it's fashion or fear, but there's like, for example, I, I was working on a, uh, I told the story at Philly ETE. I was working on a project for myself. Uh, it was a JavaScript tool that would let me do uh, constraint-based diagrams. And I started off, uh, I actually started off with CoffeeScript because I like CoffeeScript. And, and, you know, it was going along quite nicely. And then maybe, oh, I don't know, two, three weeks in, I got bitten twice in one day by the CoffeeScript habit of splitting parameter lists into multiple hashes if blah, blah, blah. So I thought, screw this. I'm going to go switch to JavaScript 6 because, you know, I've always wanted to play with it, blah, blah. So I spent maybe two days then converting all my code across to ES6 or ES2015, as we're now supposed to call it. And that was fine, and it worked out great. Uh, at the same time, I was using Grunt just because I happened to have a Grunt file lying around, and I just copied it across. And then, you know, the cool kids said, well, actually, you know, Gulp is a way better alternative. So I switched across to using Gulp. And then I run into some problems with, you know, getting the tests to get all the right JavaScript in the right place. So I did a bit of Googling and switched across to Browserify. And then I had to, you know, work out whether I was going to use, you know, Bower or NPM. And it just keeps going and going and going. So I would guess uh, I actually finished a project as much as you finish any project about a week ago. And I would guess of the total time I spent, I probably spent at least half of that time on retooling exercises. Just like, you know, going back and fixing stuff. And I'll be honest, it's better for it because when you revisit code that many times, you get the opportunity to refactor it. But at the same time, that's a hell of a lot of time to spend effectively with zero progress. And I, I don't think I'm unique. I mean, I talk to people well, and I, you know, I know a lot of people are doing that. I, I identify with that exact process. I mean, I went through that process recently with some of these JavaScript tools. Do you think it's it's in part an enthusiast's problem? I mean, I think back to some of the programmers that I first started programming with before I kind of deliberately switched my career so that I would be more around enthusiasts all the time. So back like my pre-enthusiast days, that's not a thing that I really saw as much because there were just sort of the accepted tools that every that everybody had always been using. And why would you even think about looking for a different tool? You just write everything in C or write everything in basic. Yeah, I don't know if it's enthusiastic. Maybe it is. I think there's probably, this is top of my head, but there's probably three levels. And if you imagine it as woodworking and not programming, right, then you start off and you get like, you know, a cheap chisel and a cheap hammer and a whatever else you need, a saw or something and some wood. And you sit there and you basically knock up, you know, crap looking stuff. And, you know, you're quite proud of the fact you didn't actually cut your fingers off while you were doing it. And, you know, your family goes, oh, that is absolutely wonderful while they're trying to think, where the hell are we going to put this? And that's great. And then after a while, you develop into something slightly more experienced. And then you look at the tools you're holding and you think, these tools are not worthy of me. I know I need better tools. 
And so you stop going to Home Depot for your tools and you start going to these specialist woodworking stores and you buy the incredibly expensive chisel because you know it will keep its edge sharper and it will give you a nicer cut and everything else. And you buy the latest Japanese whatever it is saw because, you know, obviously that must be way better. And once you saw Norm Abrams using that, so it must be good. And you go through that process, I think, of acquiring tools because you're convinced it will make you better. And I think a lot of people stick in that mode. You know, and they become kind of like trophy tool owners. Um, you know, golfers do the same thing with their equipment. And then you get to a certain point, And I think once you get to mastery, which clearly I haven't got to in JavaScript, the tools then fade into the background because ultimately it's you that writes the code, not the tools. So in the same way that if you look at a really experienced craftsman, you know, their tools may be absolute crap in terms of like, you know, the newest, shiniest stuff. And still they produce really, really high quality work. And I think that's, you know, I think we're going through that transition at the moment. And I think we're still stuck in the bright, shiny things phase. When you, when you say we, are you talking about developers in general or particular set of developers? I think we, the industry in general. I mean, I think certain people have it worse than others. But I think as an industry, we like to think that our tools are the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's our excuse. You think the focus on tools is a form of cargo culting? Maybe, maybe. I think it's maybe is more explicit than cargo culting uh, with certain tools. I mean, people become advocates for their tools. And I think to some extent that's because they feel that if other people don't agree with them, then they're wrong, you know, and therefore you need to make everybody a convert to Gulp or Browserify or whatever it is you're using today. And so it's not just cargo culting in that you see someone else doing it and you think, oh, I'm going to copy. I think there's actually a more active form where people who blog and, you know, everything else are going around telling people, you know, if you're still using Grunt, then you're an idiot because obviously you should be using Gulp, you know, or whatever it might be. So that, that I think, is a lot of the problem. I think we, we are surrounded in this sea of, you know, sort of implicit advertising for all these tools, and we feel that we have to try them. Is that something seems- that you've felt that you've done? Sure, absolutely. I have done that big time with Ruby when I speak to sort of more enterprise people. You know, it'll be like, you know, of course, you can continue using Java, but all the cool kids are using Ruby or whatever it might be. I'm not so much that way now, although I guess my attitude now is I like to present things to people rather than say, you should be using this. Um, So I like to say, you might want to think about some of the benefits of doing this rather than that. But, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think that I, I am definitely guilty of that. I think everybody is to some extent. And what are some of the negatives around that? It sounds like almost elitism over chosen technologies. What sort of chilling effect does that have on innovation? Well, I think it has two. First of all, it introduces a lot of inefficiencies into the system because if everybody is constantly churning through the latest set of tools, then they're not getting work done. And some of these tools are phenomenally – they have a very high overhead. Right. And so someone comes along and says, oh, you need to use, you know, whatever it might be, Angular or React or whatever else. Then you've got to go away and you've got to learn that. And that's non-trivial. And then you've got to start applying it and you apply. It. And just as you get good at applying it, someone comes along and says, oh, you're still using that. Oh, no, you need to switch to this, you know. And so I think there's that inefficiency. I think the other thing is that the kind of quest for bright, shiny means that you quite often forget what you're actually doing. And what the actual you know, benefit of what you're doing is. And I see that. Uh, I mean, a good example of that for me is the use of gems in the Ruby community. He says vaguely bringing this back to Ruby. 
if you do like any kind of decent sized Ruby development that brings in some gems, you'll be absolutely blown away by the number of secondary dependencies that you have. I mean, a Rails application, I don't know what the current count is, but it's probably 100, 150 gems or something stupid brought in. And the second you start bringing other things in, it just increases crazy. And a lot of that, if you actually dig into why they use these gems, it'll be for like one or two minor little functions. And because they wanted to, I don't know, format something as a whatever, then they're going to bring in this gem and that gem brings in six other gems and the whole thing just gets out of hand. Now, they'll argue, well, clearly that's, you know, reuse It's going to save everybody time, but it doesn't. Because down the road, what it means is you now have 12 extra gems sitting around that you're dependent on. And you switch from Ruby 1.9 to Ruby 2, and three of them break. You know, The entire idea of stuff is out there, therefore I should use it, I think is a, is a dangerous one. Because I think it gets in the way of what we're actually trying to do. I wish that every gem file had a field for an explanation of why that gem was necessary. Because I know, especially in a legacy code base, you might have you know, 100 gems in the gem file, and you have no idea, no way of tracing down what's what and what's used where. Absolutely, yeah. If I actually went through the interesting I actually deleted our gem file for our online app and tried to see what would happen. You know, so I deleted it and then ran the tests. And it was kind of instructive, but I didn't have the courage to actually put that back into production because I had no idea what was lingering in there that I deleted out. I mean, I found a few things that were, were out of date. But no, I, I, and the whole thing, I mean, we're just the, the whole process that we run through. I mean, tools like Maven, tools like Jasmine, right? Why do we test JavaScript with Jasmine? It is ridiculously verbose. It doesn't give us any particular benefit in that verbosity, but we do it because people say that's what you should do. I mean, obviously, that's the way that's the way you do it, right? It's behavior driven or whatever that means. Do, do spec really think- in JavaScript. Yes. Yeah. But Dave, when you were talking about how you went through a bunch of tool sets on your latest project, each of those tool switches was triggered by a problem. Yeah. And you know the interesting thing? When I switched tools, I still had typically that problem. But (laughs) it's kind of like you sit there and, I mean, underneath it all, you know it's your fault, right? If the code doesn't run, the chances are pretty good it's your fault. I mean, select is rarely broken. But... Every now and then, you know, you think, oh, you know what? This file is being left out because the dependency analysis in this is is crap. I'm going to switch over to that instead. And you do that. And surprise, surprise, it still is broken, but it gives you a slightly different error message. And then you go, oh, I understand now. And you go back and you fix your source code and then it then it works. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was like making excuses, I think. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking, oh, OK. Yeah, maybe I should try Browserify. Oh, I got a good reason to do that because my gob file is too complex or whatever. And so I switched across. And I, you know, I would do that time and time again. And after a while, it almost got to be a game. I was kind of watching myself do this and just kind of like grinning wryly in the background. <laughs> There's this fun thing that I've noticed where you have this stack of yaks and you've got to get them all shaved. And of course, the rule of a yak stack is that it's infinitely deep. And you push a yak onto the stack thinking this yak will, shaving this yak will eliminate all these other yaks. And once you've shaved it, you pop that yak back off the stack and you're now confronted by the same yak stack you had all the way, you know, had originally. Except it's now all covered in hair. Yes. Yes. Yak fur feels like productivity to me, honestly. Dave, you said something interesting. You said, as an industry, we like to think that our tools are the problem. That reminds me of something. It reminds me of 
a lot of people, including me, in relationships. And there was a word that you wanted to talk about today that relates to that. So can you tell us about what is limerence and how does it relate to our tools? Well, I'm probably the worst person to talk about limerence simply because, okay, the story of limerence was that I was actually reading a short story a while back and bumped into the word. And the curse of modern e-readers, you can highlight a word and see what it means. And up popped the definition. It didn't seem to make much sense. So I thought, okay, I've got to go and waste an hour looking at this. And it turned out to be a very interesting hour. I'm probably going to get this wrong. So please, people, you know, be gentle on me. But Limerence first came out in, I think, the 70s in a book called Love and Limerence. And it was an attempt to try and find some kind of slightly scientific-ish way of talking about the process of falling in love. And the word limerence was coined to uh, reflect the kind of first stages of the process of falling in love when it's really kind of one-sided. So you haven't formed a relationship yet. It's just you kind of projecting yourself into a relationship. And so, you know, you, you become infatuated is the wrong word, but, you know, deeply interested in another person. And that process is labeled limerence. I mean, if you want to get all kind of mathematical about it, you could probably think of limerence as the first derivative of love. So it's kind of the ramping up as you start to enter a relationship. And the reason I was thinking about that is I've been thinking about the way we look at our tools and our techniques as an industry. And I think we tend to have that kind of uh, relationship with many of our tools. We have that kind of one-sided love for uh, our tools. And we'd like to try to think that these tools maybe love us back, you know, I always used to talk about loving languages. You know, I used to, you know, very happily tell people, you know, I loved Ruby. And, you know, in a way, it was to do with a relationship. You know, I felt I had a relationship with Ruby. And I used to say things like, yeah, Ruby keeps me interested because it has ambiguities, which when you think about it is really very you know, close to what you would say about a relationship with a person. You know, this person keeps me interested because they'll throw me curveballs every now and then or whatever it might be. So. I'm just wondering if there's something to explore there, this idea of the process of coming to love something and whether or not that's a good thing if it relates to our tools and our languages and our techniques and, and everything else. And I mean, spoiler alert, I think it's good and I think it's bad. I think you need it, but I think you also have to be aware of the fact it's happening to you. Why shouldn't we love our tools? Oh, we should. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, it comes back to this idea of, you know, you spend all day every day using them. It would be a hell of a waste of a life if you didn't enjoy the process. You know, in the same way, it would be a waste of a life to live with someone that you, you didn't love or whatever else. So I think that it's very important to have that feeling. I also, though, think it's important to recognize the seduction that takes place mm -hmm. because Sometimes the tool becomes more important than what you're trying to do. And I think that's when it gets to be dangerous. It's like an infatuation gone wrong, you know? Um, it's, it's time to leave the abusive relationship, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe you become codependent with your tools. I don't know. But I think you can certainly become something of a stalker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like to stay up at night watching visual C++ sleep. <laughs>
That's not creepy, is it? No. You, can be, you, you can rest easily now, Dave. Basic is dead. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I still go out and put flowers on its grave. <laughs> <laughs> That's so beautiful. The word limerence is not strange to me. It's one I've been using for a long time because clearly English does not have nearly enough words for love. We use the word love for like a thousand different things. And once you get into the separation of concerns, you can speak more clearly about relationships including apparently with your tools. To me, limerence is the phase of falling in love that is irrational, where you have an irrational level of affection and interest for someone. And it works with tools, too. When you fall in love and are limerent with your tool, you dig deeper into it than you have a real need for at the moment. And you find out more about it. And after that, once hopefully, hopefully you find the edges, you find where your tool doesn't solve your problems perfectly. And then you can step back and you've developed that relationship, really that knowledge of how the tool works. You can use that and use it wisely going forward. Thanks to that period of irrational interest. Yeah, I like that. I think there's one more facet of it, and that is while you're in that phase, you can become incredibly defensive. And if the object of your attraction, if someone criticizes it, you're likely to be irrational in your response and overly, you know, come down on any criticism and, and overly defend what, you, yeah. what you're using. I think there's another side of that, too, and that's you talked about people who are at the leading edge calling other people stupid for using the old tool. I think there's a kind of arrogance that comes along with, you know, mastering a tool and not seeing other people using it at all or using it the same way that you do and kind of judging them for that. Yeah, I agree. Some of the books that talk about limerence mention that while you're feeling limerent, while you're in that phase, you may be very happy and you may be having a great time with your new love interest, but you shouldn't make any major life decisions. Not the time to change jobs or move or anything else that might bring you closer to the object of your affection that maybe isn't the best idea long term. As in they're likely to be ephemeral? You're not able to see clearly. You're so excited about this one, the object of your limerence, that all your other priorities, which really are important to you, can sometimes fall to the wayside. You might forget, for instance, why you're doing the project at all, because you're so wrapped up in the latest tool. Uh, and you don't want to make any... I'm just drawing the parallel. It's not a good time to make a major commitment like, oh, we're going all AWS on this. <laughs> I, I I like this because my mind is still blown by the, the math thing that you threw out because the reverse of that is that the integral of limerence over time is love. And yeah, while you're in limerence, you don't know if the relationship is going to be reciprocated yet. You don't know if this tool is going to give back to you. And so, yeah, quitting your job to go be a programmer of, I'm not going to pick a language, but, you know, pick some language that is really new that you look down upon because it's too new and all the cool kids are doing it and we're snobbish because we're just as bad as they are because they're saying you're dumb for not using this new tool and we're saying you're dumb because you're not getting ish done. And my point is that if you don't know that the relationship is going to be reciprocated, you don't want to make, you know, a life changing decision based on that relationship. Right. 
don't move across country to be with this person who doesn't even know you exist yet. There's also some interesting research in psychology around this stuff. And, and that goes beyond just states of being in love, but just people have studied states of, of positive emotion versus states of negative emotion and made some kind of depressing findings because it turns out that like basically people that are, that are feeling really good make dumb decisions. And that's a broad generalization, but the finding is that like if people that are in cynical moods are more likely to evaluate all the angles, they're more likely to, you know, nitpick and see potential problems uh, with decisions. Uh, so it's, it's actually, um, you know, people have, that, that study like negative emotional states have found that there are benefits to being depressed or benefits to being in a crappy state of mind because people that are, you know, they, they can see in studies that people that are in those states of mind actually make better decisions about things because they're not just sort of floating gaily over the surface of the issue. Yeah. I, I would guess, I don't know if it's true or not, but just most great artists are probably def def depressives and possibly for that reason, they are self-critical and that drives them to produce better things. And this is kind of interesting, especially for Ruby, I would think, because, I mean, we, we all talk about all the time how Ruby is this, it's this language that's all about joy, it's all about happiness, and we're all about, you know, finding programming happiness. Do you think that actually hurts us sometimes? I, that's a really good question. I don't know. The expectation of being happy all the time can hurt. I'm trying to think back through my own history to work out I think the reality is that probably there have been times where I have chosen to use Ruby over something else somewhat selfishly. Maybe a different language would have been a better bet. And I just used Ruby because, I mean, I would tell, tell myself I didn't have the ramp up time of beginning, you know, experience with the other language. But the reality was possibly I just didn't want to be with another language. You know, I really enjoyed being with Ruby. You know, the thought of being unfaithful was kind of making me nervous. And, <laughs> you know, it just didn't sound like fun. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that actually is part of the issue that we're kind of skirting around is this idea that if you fall into that trap, then there's a way bigger activation energy required to make you look at alternatives. And so your decision-making goes down partly because, as you said, you're probably less risk-averse because you're happy, but also you probably make worse decisions simply because you yourself don't want to risk being unhappy by you know, moving to C++ or whatever. Yep. People who are happy will take risks that cynical people won't. And so that's where your innovation center comes from. But if you're on an airplane and it's 30 degrees out, you really want a pilot who's trying to decide whether or not he needs to de-ice the wings one more time. You really want a pessimist in the cockpit because now is not the time to try and innovate with ice on the wings. It is true, although recent experience has shown you don't want someone who's too depressed in the cockpit. Yeah, true. This is true. But anyway, coming back to this idea of tools and falling in love with tools, I mean, just just to step back, is that a stupid analogy? Is, is that a just like, you know, pushing it too far? Or is there something we can draw from this, any kind of conclusion we can draw from this? And let me step back and say the reason I wanted to do this episode about this is that I have no idea. Um, and I, I couldn't think of a better way of, you know, trying to refine my thinking than by talking to a group of clever people and then having uh, an even bigger group of clever people listen to how ignorant I sounded. Because I thought that way I'm, I'm bound to actually come up with something. 
And how do you feel about that risk now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm looking at the clock. <laughs> I think it's a great analogy, personally. I think it's excellent because, like you said, you were kind of stepping back and smirking at yourself, watching yourself switch from tool to tool. At the same time, we can totally do that if we have words for our excitement that we feel about the tools. Then we can start to distinguish between what is excitement at solving the problem and what is excitement at this particular toy. Because there's a balance. In the end, if you're a professional woodworker, you should upgrade your tools. To I actually lived down the street from a man who made harpsichords for a living, and he insisted on the use of 17th century tools. And his tool decision actually had an impact on the quality of the instruments that he made and was part of like part of what he was known for was his 17th century techniques. So. I don't know how that how that sort of comes into play, but I, I don't know that as a as a craftsperson, you need the latest and greatest tools. I think you can whatever you're used to and whatever is friction free has benefits for you. And I think particularly if you think about, say, the woodworking analogy, a great woodworker, which I am not, their tool becomes an extension of their thinking. Right. So they're not consciously holding that tool. And they're not consciously thinking about angles or anything else. They just know that if they do something, then the result will be something else. So it takes time to build that. I mean, you may or may not believe the 10,000 hour business, but it does take a long time to develop that kind of tacit knowledge of how a tool behaves when you use it. And if you're constantly switching tools, you never give yourself the time to get that mastery. And so I think that you need to decide on, I mean, maybe it's not an individual tool as much as a philosophy of tool when it comes to software, but you need to decide on tools that work for you and then say, okay, I'm going to let the next three generations go by me as I develop mastery of these tools. And personally, I think that will give you way more satisfaction and probably way better outcomes than constantly switching to the brightest, shiniest thing. I think we have that fear of falling behind, that fear of irrelevancy that probably is part of the reason that we're constantly trying out new tools and technologies because we're afraid that our existing tools are going to make us irrelevant. Well, that I is think, true. I think there's a certain amount of sense to that fear. I mean, I think it's, I don't think it's completely ungrounded because we are, as an industry, I mean, we still basically have no idea what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's a bit irrational to say, Oh, this tool is definitely it. Like this is, but at the same time, I completely agree that you will go nowhere if you just keep hopping from tool to tool. You have to sometime, at some point, decide, yes, I'm going to let the, a few generations go by me while I get really comfortable with this thing. Different tools work well in different contexts, and that context includes us. It includes what we know and are skilled with. When you do switch context, that's a good time to think about maybe switching tools. If you were writing a hardware code in C and then you switch to business software, good time to switch tools. Yeah, that's a really good point. But I think there's another side to that too. And that is, it comes back to another of my kind of like hobby horses. And that's this idea of, okay, so when do you learn? When do you train? And I think too many developers have this idea that, okay, I train on the job. So I train in whatever my employer is telling me to use next. And that's how I get my experience. And if you do that, then you're definitely going to fall into the trap of, you know, 
staying a generation behind or possibly just going in a totally superior direction because, you know, someone's manager has a brother who happens to run whatever, you know. I think as a developer, you have to take responsibility for your own development and your own training and your own keeping up to date. So I think that you should probably have this slightly schizophrenic thing going on where you have the tools that you use to create value. And, you know, those are probably going to be the stable tools, the ones that you don't want to mess with too much because that's where your value comes from currently. And then you need to think about, okay, the future. And that's when you're going to be training yourself in these new technologies. And the, the mindset that you're in when you're doing that is very different. In that mindset, you're deliberately making mistakes. In fact, if you're not making mistakes, you're not picking up what's valuable about these tools. Yeah. And so you'll be at home and you'll pick up, I don't know, you tell me, React.js or something, and you'll spend a week of evenings just messing around, you know, and doing a, the old to-do list or something just to, to see what it's like and see what the philosophy is and, you know, try and at least remember that there is this here. I think it was after he was talking about, you know, the danger of falling behind. I think it's absolutely true, right? But we are responsible for not falling behind. And to do that, we have to partition our time. We have to partition it into value generation and generating ourselves. And I think too few developers actually think about it in those terms. So so let me bring this home a little bit. Uh, Dave, like about 15 years ago, you wrote in The Pragmatic Programmer that we should learn a new language every year. Uh, do you still think that's a, a good rule of thumb? Yeah, although it may not be language anymore. It may be uh, technique or it may be framework or something similar. But yes, I think we have to take on a challenge at least once a year of something new and get off to some kind of speed with it. And I, I think we do that because, first of all, it keeps us current. I think also quite often when I learn new things, like I write Ruby very differently now that I know Elixir. Uh, mm-hmm. My Ruby code looks way more kind of functional-ish. My functions have shrunk down in length. So it's really kind of like there's a cross-fertilization that goes on there. That, you know, when you do learn new things and you push yourself to learn new things, then you'll find it does actually leak back into what you do on a day-to-day basis as well. So here's something I just thought about in relation to that. You talked about going through the progression from like Grunt to Gulp to Browserify. And there are a lot of these new technologies and new tools that are very similar. And when we talk about learning a new language or a new technique or something, I mean, do we have to use a certain amount of care in choosing something that'll, that's actually different? If we want to maximize what we get out of it, absolutely. And I've always said that. I think you need, if you're looking at a language and you already know, you know, C, then, oh, sorry, a bad example. Uh, if you already know C++, then switching to Java is not a radical change if you're trying to train yourself in something new, whereas switching to Clojure or Haskell or something else is, right? And I think you need to think about that. Now, the interesting thing to me about, say, Grunt versus Gulp is not the actual specification of the build that you want, right? Because they're both incredibly ugly and really difficult to use. The interesting thing about Gulp, once you get used to it, is the internal way it actually works, which is basically a set of filters that apply to a stream of activities that are passing through them. Whereas the first activities are probably just like picking up file contents and then we're transforming them using compilers or you know, minifying them or whatever we're doing. And Gulp actually shows us one way of organizing a workflow in that kind of streaming environment. And what I'm shocked is that no one has come up, or maybe they haven't, I haven't heard of it, with 
a kind of gulp-alike thing for business processes because it seems like a natural fit. It's kind of like an asynchronous message queue, but really easy to use. So for me, the big learning experience with Gulp, uh, which was frustrating when I first started, was getting that into my head. That's how it worked, and that's how to think about the progression of my data through it. So I think in that particular respect, yeah, there's no real big difference between Gulp and Grunt in terms of capabilities. But in terms of how they do them, I think Gulp was interesting. Hmm. Gulp thinks about it in a very functional way. Yeah, but it also has this kind of like non-functional idea of the multi it's it's kind of like trying to work out what the stream actually is in gulp is the interesting part and you know how it handles the fact that you have multiple things going on at the same time in that stream and how it handles the synchronization of those things uh that's what i found was really nice great point so that's a great example of how learning a build tool can have the same kind of effects on your brain that learning a new language might yeah, absolutely. But only if you really dig in. Uh, Git is like this, too. Git has all kinds of brilliant ideas inside that are super useful outside it. But if you just stick with the surface, what do I type? How do I make this work? Give me the spell. You'll never get there. You have to get the philosophy of it. There was a, a really great author. I forget his name, but he wrote a book where he said, don't trust evil wizards. Do you know who that was, Dave? Um, I know it was Andy Hunt. That's uh, it. And, That's and it. another guy. And another, yeah, guy. another um, guy. I I still recommend Pragmatic Programmer to people today. I think it is still a valid, as valid today as it was 15 years ago. And that book is probably in my top five books that hit me like like scripture, almost like like revelatory experiences. And yeah, the the horrible thing about Git is that to really get good use about it, you really have to dig in and understand what a directed acyclic graph is. The awesome thing about Git is that if you dig in and find out what a directed acyclic graph is, you can do mind-blowing things in your code, like move a chunk of code from one file to another and still see the revision history in that other file of the code when it was in the file it was that it came from. Or if you're me, as I just did this morning, you can totally destroy about three days worth of work by uh, trying to be too clever with it. But yeah, yeah. And I, I come back. It comes back. Okay, let's 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 try and circle a little bit here. Okay, I think it comes back when you think when you put it in those terms. Doesn't it sort of also sound about the same as forming a relationship? In that you can be superficial, you know, whoa, she looks cute, or you could be, hey, I want to learn more about you. Yeah. Which one's going to lead to a more fulfilling and long term relationship? That's so true. You could be the pickup artist. How do I just get this to work? Yeah. Or, you know, hey, I really like your directed I seek the glove. Grab that. If I had a dime for every time I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I like one of the things I like about the conversation we're having is that it acknowledges a personal and emotional component to the technology. It's a reflection of our humanity. We, as professional developers, we seem to idolize objectivity, but we're acknowledging through this conversation that we are necessarily subjective creatures. And I think we often try to hide that by couching what is fundamentally subjective in this patina of objectivity. And I think that's one of the dangers that I was talking about at the beginning, where you have people that push a particular solution as being the solution. Yeah. You know, 
well, clearly we do it this way, right? As if there was some objective benefit to it, as opposed to, you know, this one makes me feel better. I think there's another parallel with relationships where, you know, you see that person who gets into a new relationship and the, their relationship kind of becomes their identity. Um, yeah. It's all they talk about, you know, they get the person's face tattooed on their arm or something. It might be an extreme example, but you know, it's, you look at their, you know, at their social media profiles and it's all about who they're attached to, right? And you see that. I see that a ton with technologies. You know, you go like, look at people's Twitter profiles or something and it lists basically like what technology they're in a relationship with. Yeah. And you've asked them what they do and they say, I'm a Ruby programmer. You know, and right, with the, the to be verb in there, I am a Ruby programmer as opposed to I write Ruby. Right. Yeah. You see, again, it's inheritance versus composition. Our relationship status with technology should read. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So maybe what we should do is we should all like sort of stop and form some kind of technology counseling service. You know, <laughs> Ooh, <that laughs> have you been injured by a technology? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Please see a doctor if your Vim usage lasts for more than four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Please oh. tell me how you feel when you get this compiler error. Yeah. <laughs> Is your language hurting you? And then that goes back to what, what Dave said earlier that as an industry, we like to think our tools are the problem. So if you're going from tool to tool and frustrated and unsatisfied in all of them, maybe it's you. Yeah. Ish, except at the same time, like, I kind of appreciate the view that at this point, all the tools suck. I don't know, maybe that's me. <laughs> but they kind but of. They're all trade-offs. They all solve some problems well and cause others, right? I think we have this tendency to think of, like, new tools as being, like, this linear progression of better and better solutions, when I think a lot of times we're just rehashing forgotten solutions. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. But I the mean, context has changed. So some of those solutions that didn't work in the 70s do work now. I actually like that person uh, you had a relationship once and it totally didn't work out. But then you both matured in, in the past 20 years and now and then you meet again. It could happen. It could happen. Yeah. Except that you're both married and have kids. And now right. Yeah. <laughs> it's going might be taking this too far. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. No, it, it, <laughs> you were talking about like looking forward and looking forward and and it does it it makes me think about sometimes we forget to look back that to go from woodworking to metallurgy Damascus steel was made in Damascus and you know like 2000 years ago and we didn't know how to make it like the the secret to making this was lost and we have now in the past 10 years rediscovered one way to make it and it requires modern tools. So it's probably not how they made it 2000 years ago. It requires a long lengthy process and, and all this really good. And the history of it's a lot of fun. You can look it up on Wikipedia sometime, but computer science is moving so fast that we are having these same kinds of experiences within half a generation gap where like, well, I guess, I guess it would be a full generation at this point, but I, I can remember back in like 2009 going back and watching the SICP lectures from MIT and being very angry that there were concepts being taught in, at MIT in 1984 that not only had I not, did I not know them, but nobody I knew knew them, which means I, I, I was not hearing them from any modern programmers. 
and these were enduring concepts. It was like it wasn't the cap theorem, but it was like the cap theorem, right? It, it, it's, it's like one of those kind of immutable laws of things, you know, like like streams and, and that sort of thing. And now it's all kind of come back because there was this big resurgence of SICP in 2009. And now when you talk to people about, you know, streaming things and, and, and using queuing and that sort of thing, it, it's come back into our lexicon. And it's like a rediscovery of a 2,000-year-old metalworking technique. But the reason we're rediscovering it is because we forgot it. And so... I love looking forward and moving forward, but don't get so limerent with the new that you throw out all of the old because the principles and practices from the old are still going to hold true. Absolutely. And in fact, I was thinking a couple of days ago, it was actually 40 years ago that I sat in the lecture theater and Tony Hall talked about communicating sequential processes and whoopee, we've just discovered them again. Um, <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. But here's my question. Right. So you've got I mean, what have we got now? We've got what, maybe what, 60 years of history as an industry, maybe a little bit more if you roll in some of the kind of like more mathy stuff. Yeah. How should somebody learn the salient points of our history? How would somebody discover on their own communicating sequential processes? Or, you know, sort of the algorithms plus data structures book or, you know, all of the old stuff that still has so much to teach us. How do you go about discovering that? Oh, I uh, you pick you it an on Ruby Rogues <laughs> and then people randomly sometimes read it. There you go. I think so, you're I'm, making a great point, you know, that we are in a cycle of forgetting our history every four or five or six years. I think we are, but I think part of that is because our history is not made available to us. I mean, and I, I mean, I know that's kind of like, you know, blaming someone else but the reality is that the presentation of history is an incredibly powerful way of influencing people and teaching people and i think as an industry we do a really bad job of that we don't honor our history and the people who made our history uh, we don't study it i mean we're kind of like a, a group of people who are you know writing books that have never actually read a book you know that is they just enjoy the process of writing so much yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, we need to find ways of making that history accessible and relevant because it is. I mean, it's fundamentally, I mean, the first OO language arguably is Simula 67 and Simula 67 still has features in it that no current OO language that I know of has. It's amazing to me. There is still so much back there that we haven't mined. You think that's uh, in part due to, you know, an imbalance between people who are CS majors necessarily and those who are self-taught? Could well be. Could well be. I mean, having said that, uh, I don't have a, a thing against self-taught. In fact, I would say that the majority of the better programmers I know do not have CS degrees. And to some extent, many of those actually have a better grasp on our history. Uh, and I think maybe that's because they chose to come into it a bit later, and it is more likely to have been because of some interest as opposed to their parents saying, go get a job. And as a result, they are more likely to go groveling around and learning stuff. I don't know. But, yeah, I mean, that, that could be. I don't, think, I don't think having a CS degree is in any way a guarantee that you actually understand our history. Yeah. I mean, I have a CS degree, but I mean, I was actually taking it at the point that history was being made. So I have a great understanding of the history. <laughs> do, do they teach this kind of thing in ordinary computer science courses that are like not MIT? 
I only minored in comp sci, so, and I definitely didn't get this. And in fact, the culture was oh, history. That's for liberal arts majors. Do you want <laughs> a prize with that? <laughs> There's been a nerfing of the curriculums at a lot of schools. Brigham Young University used to have one of the top rated CS programs in the country. They were like in the top 10. And now they're not even, they're just like embarrassed to even talk about comp sci. And when I was there in like 91 and well, 92 and 93, the comp sci program was very much grounded in mathematics and the history of, and it was actual computer science. When I circled back to 15, 16 years later, talking to programmers in 2006 who were recent graduates from BYU. And I, I was asking them, so what did you do your senior project on? Oh, we don't do senior projects anymore. Oh, okay. Well, what did you do? But oh, we don't, we don't do that anymore. Well, how hard was it for you to apply to get into the major? And they're like, Oh, there's no requirement to get into the major anymore. And I'm like, what? And I, I finally sat down and, and said, what did you learn in your computer science degree and it turns out that BYU and I hate to dig on my alma mater but their computer science program is now a trade tech school for programming <laughs> it's no longer computer science it's computer craft or computer tradesmanship and I'm going to get hate mail sorry guys I love you but yeah the, the CS program at a lot of schools has changed from how will this teach you the science of computing to how will this get you a job as a programmer it's interesting because one of our editors and authors is Brian Hogan, and he actually, his real job, if you like, is, is teaching. Uh, he teaches at a university, and he bemoans this, partly because it's actually the students that drive that. You know, the students say, hey, you know what? I don't want to come out of this with a math degree or something else. I want to come out with this with a job. Exactly. And so, you know, I need you yeah. to show me how to code Java or whatever it is, on top of which most of the people teaching in those courses you know, they really don't have that much experience in, in doing it for real. And so they're very happy to go along with that. And so yeah. you're absolutely right. It leads to a, a gradual tragedy of the commons in terms of what you what you can learn. Yeah. The good news is that once we mature a bit and we learn that the liberal arts is actually a way to learn to process information and is a fabulous thing, then we have the option of going back. And for instance, if I'd learned about CSP in college, I would not have appreciated it. But now, with some experience, I can much better grasp how this might be used, how it contrasts with other techniques that I'm familiar with, and I can appreciate the history in ways that I couldn't then. And the books are out there, right? I mean, I've got a couple of them on my shelf. What are they? So I'm looking at, like, SICP, or Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, and that's, like, one of the classics. Right. Right. Oh, small talk, best practice patterns. That's a good one. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I've got types and programming languages by Pierce. Now, have I read all of these? I promise I've read chapter one in everything on my shelf. <laughs> but that's where all the big ideas are. And I figure if, if I believe them and I don't need extra proof, then I don't have to read the rest of it. Absolutely. Or Dave, do you have a curriculum list? I mean, as a author and publisher, is there something that you'd recommend to people? Here's a resource to go soak up the history of your profession. I cannot think of one or a small number of books that I'd recommend for that. We can and ask I, our listeners to tweet yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love to hear what people think. Because, I mean, you know, things like Nooth volumes one through four, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Everybody owns and nobody's read. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that is a really cool book. I mean, I, I actually was probably one of the few people that actually read every word in the first three. 
And I really, really enjoyed it. But if I was to look back on it now, it's not something I could recommend to someone who just graduated simply because it's very, very focused on one thing. So for you have to read whatever it is, a thousand pages, two thousand pages, and you would come away knowing about analyzing algorithms and thinking about, you know, the beauty and what you do and everything else. Wow. But it's at its time, it was like revolutionary and it made us all think. Yep. Now it's like it needs some kind of, you know, condensing down to a chapter in, you know, the story of how we got where we are. Yeah. Newth is, I like to think of Newth as the Shakespeare of our time because everybody wants to have read Newth, but nobody wants to read Newth. <laughs> no, it's true. There's like this volume of information that could be condensed. And that's kind of what, that's what speaking is about for me, largely. Conference talks. Yeah, that's a good point. Condensing yeah. that's, those ideas, bringing it alive, and then sharing it in a way that keeps people's attention. And here's the other thing about knowing your history. If you actually understand, and this is not just in computing, this is in the world, right? If you know your history and if you know the various drivers, then you are less likely to be fooled by snake oil salesmen. So people will quote stuff as, you know, this is important, that's important. And if you actually know where they're coming from, what the history of this was, then you would, you know, be able to say, actually, no, that's not true. Right. So like, I mean, one of the, one of the things I thought was really interesting to me was the whole big thing about go to, right? So Dijkstra writes the letter in the ACM, go to considered harmful. And not only does he cons- create the considered harmful meme, right? But he also drives an entire generational language designers to create all these convoluted languages without go to. Why? Because Dijkstra didn't know how to prove mathematically a program if it included a go-to because he couldn't work out what the pre and post conditions of a crown or go-to were. No one can because you don't know where it came from, right? And so go-to considered harmful is just basically go-to is considered a pain in the butt in my research because I can't make proof about it, right? And now as a result, you know, people sort of like certainly for a long time strenuously avoided go-to when it was actually the clearly the best thing to use in a particular plane. And the number of totally convoluted programs I have read simply because people were trying to avoid go-tos or whatever else, right? Structured programming was fantastic. Without structured programming, we wouldn't be where we are today. But the reason for structured programming is totally lost, right? We don't do structured programming for the reason that they did it initially, and that was provability. And so I think if you if you understand that history and if you know what motivated it, uh, then you're in a lot stronger position, possibly to resist the allures of, you know, the things that you might become infatuated with today. Go to is a fun one because we watched it morph from go to considered harmful to languages like Visual Basic adopting, you know, eliminating the pure go to, but keeping on error go to. And then, you know, like the end of the function or whatever. And then it became exception. Like, like, all, like go-tos got replaced with exception handling. And it's fun to watch that. Yeah, there are entire swaths of computer science that we consider part of our bedrock that are really just the result of some guy's blog post. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. David, sounds like your next book should be The History and Philosophy of Programming. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. How would you even approach that? 
It's tough, right? Because, you know, I'm thinking about something like CSP, communicating sequential processes, which I think is, you know, a great example of a fascinating paper than a great, I assume a great book because I only read the paper with really big implications and nobody knows about it. Um, except for, you know, the people that I guess implement Erlang. And I'm having a hard time imagining a useful way to address that in a single, a single chapter in a book, you know, like I can imagine writing about it. I can't imagine it having an actual impact on how somebody thinks about their problems. If they just read a chapter in a book on here's what CSP is. Well, I think what you possibly would have to do is to have two types of story in a book like this. There's the story of the things that came about, right? So something like CSP and agents, both of which are 1970s ideas, you know, really are coming to fruition 40 years later. And so part of the, the, the book would be those kind of stories. But then part of the book would also be the rest of the stuff, the stuff that we don't currently copy. And the idea there would be to show that, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff back there and maybe to fire some neurons in somebody somewhere to go, hey, you know what? That actually would solve my problem. And, you know, basically by laying out what's possible and what's come before, then, you know, people can pick and choose what would be useful to them if they don't even know it exists and they can't. I mean, a really great example of that is bloom filters. I mean, very few people actually know of bloom filters. And to my knowledge, there are no kind of like off the shelf library implementations fantastically useful algorithm, unbelievably useful algorithm. I use it maybe once a year and it solves some massive problem. And yet, you know, it's just not known. So that's the kind of thing where if you could highlight, you know, those kind of things, then maybe, I don't know, people would have a better understanding for where they came from. Hmm. That would be a great blog. Somebody please start that blog. You can call it the next big idea that is not new. The last big idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Make it a Twitter account. It's like neo-futurism, right? Mm-hmm. Computer archaeology. Computer anthropology. Anthropology. I like that. Nice. The history but, thief. There's a lot of treasure in those tombs. <laughs> I'm going to state a bias and ask you to confirm it. I feel like the uh, rampant use of social media and Hacker News and Progit and stuff like that is not helping with the like learning these big ideas that we've lost. I feel like it's really reinforcing the constant cycle of new that isn't really new. How do you feel about that? I couldn't agree more. And a lot of that is because the people that are the most strident typically are also the people that spend so much time thinking about themselves. They don't really have that much time to think about other things. And so the people that are famous and the people that are the volume producers of all the stuff on on Reddit and everything else are typically not that informed. I'll disagree. Four years ago, before I was on Twitter, before I was going to very many conferences, and before I read any of that stuff, I was a very different programmer, and I learned very little. I went through 10 years of like getting really good at Java, but I could have been a lot better if I'd been keeping up with what the rest of the community was doing. And Twitter has been amazing for me. Now, Twitter in particular is awesome because I can curate my own feed and only listen to the people that are talking about this kind of historic thing and these these big ideas and are not getting like too irrationally excited about the next big thing. So for me, Twitter's a lot better than, well, I, I just don't go to Reddit or Hacker News. Sorry, I don't need that kind of stress. Right. <laughs> 
The self-curation, yeah. I think, is key there, Jessica. It's not participating in a culture in which amplified voices tend to be the voice of the majority. Good point. You're curating it. You're finding people who are interesting and maybe who have viewpoints who are different than yours. And I seeded that by going to conferences, meeting some people and following them and then following their retweets. And that's actually that's really good. I, I don't disagree with that at all, because what you're doing there is, as, as I say, you're selecting you're selecting it. But even with Twitter and even if you only pick, I mean, to some extent, if you follow people that you trust, Twitter can also be that incredible distraction. It's like uh, what was the name? Uh, Doug, that dog in the, the movie, you know, was constantly going squirrel and chasing <laughs> off after something, you know. And, you know, somebody I respect posts something about, oh, you know, oh, I'm really enjoying this. And bang, there goes two days of my life. And in fact, one of the things will actually be my pick. Uh, and it's your fault, Jessica, because I was um, chatting with you about Slack and your enthusiasm convinced not uh, to convince me that I should uh, give it a go. So I just spent the entire weekend and yesterday coding up various extensions so we can integrate it into our, our systems. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> And that's that was a classic squirrel moment because I really don't have that time. So, but I so I think you got to be you know careful to to balance every source of information. And fundamentally, I think you need to control your you know it needs to be a discipline thing. Learning is discipline, and you know you you need to have it. That's a I fan- don't. <laughs> that's a fantastic point, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Just because I'm, I'm sort of getting to a point in my life where I'm realizing just how little time I have left, relatively speaking, in the grand scheme of things, to learn compared to all the stuff that there is to learn and realizing that, like, I actually need to, you know, write up a list of the programming languages that I really genuinely want to invest some time into and then I need to deliberately avoid the others because I just, I can't, I can't, there's too much. I mean, is, is that, do you do that? Do you do that deliberately? Uh for me, it's the other way around in that I typically, for like a programming language, what I do is I'll dip my toe into a programming language, particularly if someone I know likes it. And then pretty quickly, I'll decide whether or not this is for me. And it's nothing to do with the technical side of it or the, you know, theoretical underpinnings of it. It's just, you know, does it work for me? And if not, then I'm not going to do it. But again, you know, I, I think that uh, so, for example, right now, okay, so uh, Scala versus Clojure has been kind of weighing on me a little bit because I've avoided JVM-based languages now for years and years. And, you know, I keep feeling I need to learn one of the two of those. And both of them, when I first tried them, put me off. And now a lot of people I'm respecting are telling me that Clojure is good. So at some point, I'm going to go back and spend a week, you know, running a few of my standard programs and recoding them in, in closure and maybe come around and say, okay, yeah, this is cool. So yeah, I don't know. I don't have it as, as a kind of like a list the way you do, because like I say, that would require discipline and I don't have any. <laughs> um, but I, I do consciously think about what I learn, but to some extent, what I learn is based on uh, what makes me feel good, which is probably not a good idea. The other thing I'd say is that, one of the things as developers that I think we need to be thinking about, and that comes back to your, you know, ancient aged self and how <laughs> you, you only have like a, a few minutes left and you're spending it on this call, <laughs> is that we need to think about all of the things that we learn, not just the technologies that we learn. And we need to make conscious efforts to learn, you know, whatever we can. Uh, we need to read, we need to experience, we need to do stuff. 
partly because it's really easy to get totally absorbed in what we're doing. It's so much fun and it kind of like drags you in. There's all that kind of like infatuation thing that we're talking about, you know, the, the limerence, the idea of it drags you in. It makes you want to participate. It kind of like addicts you in a way. And uh, we tend to forget about the rest, you know, showering and stuff like that. So we don't go out there. We don't experience and we don't learn. And I think as developers, we actually owe it to ourselves and to the rest of the world to make a, a conscious effort to learn other stuff as well as just the technology. And in the same way that learning random technology will actually improve what you do day by day in your current technologies, I think learning other stuff also has that kind of impact. And it makes you a more rounded person, a better person to work with, and more interesting over a beer. That is a great point. It's a series of great points. We are getting to time and over time. There's one thing that you just mentioned that I, I really, I can't stop myself from circling back on. I really want to ask you about. You mentioned coding some of your standard programs. Like, the, like you mentioned how you learn a language or decide you like a language. And I'm really curious about that process. Yeah. So I like have two or three that I like to try to write. Depending on the language, what it's good at, um, I'll do different things. But for example, a pseudocosolver is actually a pretty good program to write. Because it's, it involves a fair amount of like messing around with data and, you know, trying to structure things in a tidy way. And it also, it's a challenge in a little bit of a way because some of the solutions that would work in like an OO context don't work at all in a functional context because obviously state management is different. So I enjoy that one. If I want to get really into a language uh, and I got some time, a really good program to write is a markdown parser because markdown is such a badly specified markup. And it has so many weird little edge cases that it's actually very representative of real world coding. Uh, and so I've done that three times now, written a markdown parser just to learn the language and the, the kind of way around it. And every time I feel I've done it better. And every time I've learned a whole bunch about the language I'm using. Sweet. Should we do picks now? Let's go with the important picks. Dave, what do you want to pick? Oh, I don't know about important because, uh, all my picks are, are relatively uh, straightforward and nothing exciting in them. And I, the reason I pick them is not because of the surface features, but because of the stuff that's kind of behind them. Uh, so let me try and justify this. Uh, my first pick is Slack. And uh, I'm a newly found or a new convert to Slack, uh, thanks to Jessica's recommendations uh, last week. And I've been working on it since, oh, I guess the weekend, so maybe three, four days. And I have been blown away at how easy it is to integrate Slack into the rest of our business. The thought that has gone into the various APIs, the web hooks and the um, API calls directly and everything else, it's just beautiful. They've resisted the temptation to put the kitchen sink in there. And as a result, they've come up with something which is simple and clean and just works. Uh, so uh, they've made a convert out of me simply because of that discipline. Uh, so hats off to them. My second pick is a book, and it's a book that's about four or five years old. Uh, it's called Why Does E Equal MC Squared by uh, Brian Cox and Jeff Forshaw. And uh, I picked it firstly because uh, I like this kind of book. It's a, it's a mass market science book, and uh, you know I like reading about this kind of stuff. And I picked it because... It's a phenomenally good book in terms of the way it produces explanations of things. They have a talent for choosing 
really apt and interesting analogies, and then also for saying, okay, at this point, we're going to stop using this analogy because it's broken down, it's no longer valid. They also have a really good way of taking concepts that are kind of weird and converting them into the everyday. And what I found is at the end of this book, my understanding, no, my intuition about four-dimensional space-time is now a lot more solid than it was. I can actually sort of like manipulate things in my head that I used to have to sit down and, you know, think through as, you know, explicit thoughts. Uh, A lot more has become tacit as a result of reading this book. I mean, the phenomenal job they've done is that in the middle chapter of the book, they actually show the derivation of E equals MC squared using really nothing much more than three uh, postulates, three suppositions, and Pythagoras. And based on that, uh, out it pops. Phenomenally good job. And my third pick is a conference. It's a conference that Jessica and I went to last week, along with five, six hundred other people. Uh, and that's the Philadelphia Emerging Technology for the Enterprise Conference. I do a lot of conferences, and I typically either don't attend the talks, or if I do attend the talks, I'm sitting at the back uh, next to a power strip just working on either my talk or some other project. This conference I actually enjoyed and participated in every talk I went to. In fact, it was actually hard to pick between the tracks sometimes. The talks were of such good quality. The reason for this, I think, is that it has a slightly controversial format They don't call for papers. Instead, they invite speakers. They decide what topics are interesting, and then they go and they look for the best speakers to talk about those topics. And as a result, it really is world-class. So uh, if you have the opportunity and you're in the area, I would strongly recommend the Philly ETE conference. And those are my picks. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dave, and thank you, everyone, for this episode. It's been super interesting. Yes. I bet we'll have you back again. I would love to be back. It's uh, always a pleasure. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.